0: And music tonight, and that's neat how God ties these different things together. I love that. So, tonight I don't have a handout for you, and I don't have a PowerPoint either. Although, there will be one uh, soul slide that'll come at the end just to kind of show something on a map. But if you want to turn open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, that's where we're at. So, we're continuing in a series on the book of Acts, which I kind of started at some point past, and we'll continue on as I have opportunity. So uh, that's what we're doing. We're talking about chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So pull out your Bibles or your phones with your Bible app, whatever that case may be. We've got extras in the pew racks underneath you, you, of course. I think many of you know that, Uh, but uh, follow along and that'll help tonight. Uh, This is a rather familiar story uh, that perhaps many of you already know. It records the day of Pentecost, after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, the day in which the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers who were gathered there together in Jerusalem. So let's start by reading the text, and uh, then we'll get into the work of explaining and applying it. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, again this is Acts chapter 2, they were gathered together in one place, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytites, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling of our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all who were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So that's the text we're going to be talking about. And trust me, if you've ever had trouble... Saying some of those names, try doing it without a few teeth, because <laughs> uh, I lost a few recently, so that's a little bit challenging. So if I botched any of those, I apologize. But we'll have the map on of those different locations later on, and uh, we'll see where where those are located. So this is a story, um, and not one of Paul's letters, where his argument could kind of be broken up into three nice even points. I find it a little bit more difficult to preach on a narrative. So what I'm going to do is just kind of go through the story rather than saying these are the three things that Luke says about whatever. um, Really, we're just going to go through the text one verse at a time. And really, if you have your Bibles open and your Bible divides these things up into paragraphs, which most do, you'll see that oftentimes the division is verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 13. So we have two major sections of our text tonight. The first part is what happens, really, with the Holy Spirit coming. Right? The Holy Spirit comes upon these people who are gathered, and then in 5 through 13, you see their reaction of the crowd to what has happened, right? So you have the event of the Holy Spirit and then the reaction, and that's really the division of the story that we'll go through. So let's just explain the text, right? And then ultimately, I want to get to why does this matter, right? Because I'm telling you up front, this is a significant portion of Scripture. This matters. Uh, this is incredibly important for us as Christians, And just in history in general, in terms of, like, what are some of the most significant things that have happened throughout history from the beginning of time until now? You certainly could say the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, his birth, those things come to mind real quick. Well, Pentecost is one of those top ten, I would say, one of the most important things that happens And so why is that? Well, we'll read and explain the text, then I'll tell you why at the end. All right, so let's go through this uh, one verse at a time. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. Now, again, picking up from where we were just a few weeks or months ago, uh, when I talked about Acts uh, in in general before, uh, chapter 1, we're talking about a, a group of believers it just says they, but it's continuing on from chapter one where we were, and uh, they're all together in one place in Jerusalem. And we see that's exactly what Jesus commanded them to do back in chapter one, verses four and five. So if you're open in your Bibles, just go back a few verses, chapter one, verse four and five, and it says, while staying with them... He, that is Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so he's referring to a promise, he said, I made it, you've heard it before, wait here until that happens, and we see that promise is not just like an offhanded one, but one that was promised from the Old Testament years and years before. So you don't have to turn there. I'll just read this passage for, for all of us. It's Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And there it said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Okay, so that was a promise made all the way back in the book of Joel, that something's going to happen with God's spirit someday. Then we see, if we fast forward a little bit into the Gospels, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Again, you don't have to turn there, uh, but John the Baptist is speaking, and he says to the crowd that's gathered there that somebody's going to come after him. He says, quote, who is going to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he says, this person, whoever he is, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, okay? And of course, he's referring to Jesus. But he's saying that this person's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? Another reference to something that's going to happen with the Holy Spirit. Same event being prophesied here. Now, we get even closer to this event now. Jesus is raised from the dead. He's ascended. Uh, Well, he's not yet ascended. He's appearing to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, and he's promising to them that this is going to take place soon. Stick around in Jerusalem, because that day is almost here. Now, he doesn't say exactly what day this would take place. He doesn't say, it's going to happen five days from now, right? Uh, Only that it's going to happen soon, not many days from now, he says. Um, And from what we see in the Gospels and Acts, however, it would seem that this day of Pentecost is less than ten days after Jesus' ascension. Well, how do we know this? The Last Supper took place on Passover. We know that, right? Uh, The Last Supper is, is a celebration of Passover, and this celebration of Pentecost was traditionally seven weeks, or around 50 days after that day. The resurrection, you know, happens just a few days after Passover, And then Acts chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus stuck around after his resurrection for 40 days, appearing to his his disciples. So you see the timeline I'm building here. Passover was one Jewish celebration. In the Jewish timeline, Pentecost came 50 days after that, right? A few days after the Passover, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he stays with them for 40 more days, and you can see that we have less than 10 days left between Passover and, you know, this, uh, this, this coming of Pentecost. So after Jesus is ascended, which happens in Acts chapter 1, and the, the apostles are choosing the successor to Judas, and then Pentecost arrives. All that is in less than 10 days, and you can sort of do the math. Now, nobody's exactly sure of the exact number of days because of the chronology and all that. My point is that it happens soon, right? We talked about last time we were together... The fact that they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And I'm saying maybe three or so days after that happens, this happens. So when you read the book of Acts as one unit, not breaking it up like we're doing, uh, you'll see that it reads like a continuous narrative. And that's because all of this is happening, happening relatively close together. So now, a few days later, after the events we talked about last time, the same group of disciples are still gathered together in Jerusalem most likely still in that same upper room where they were gathered in, in the previous passage. And we have reason to suspect that it's more than just the apostles who are gathered here. You see, in Acts chapter 2, 1, which we just read, it's very generic. It just says they were gathered in one place. Um, they were all gathered together. Well, who's the all, right? Some pictures, if you just look up maybe on Google Images or famous Christian art, when you, when you see this event recorded in paintings, you see the tongues of fire coming down on a group of people. Usually that painting just shows the apostles, right? Is it just the apostles that are here though? And I would say probably not. Probably it's even more than the apostles. Not just 12 individuals gathered here when this event happens, but rather the whole group of 120, which we talked about last time we said that before, in Acts chapter 1, uh, specifically verse 14, that the apostles were originally gathered together with, quote, the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in fact, Acts 1.15, that's where we see uh, it says 120 persons were praying together. So I would propose that that same group is gathered here for this event of the coming of Pentecost. Not just 12 guys, Right. But Mary, Jesus' mother, um, Jesus' brothers are gathered here. The women that came to the tomb to be able to see Jesus' tomb when he was first resurrected, all of those are here when this happens, okay? And, uh, and so that's the setting we're given. Um, and we're asked the question, now, or we could ask the question, knowing who's gathered there, um, knowing where they're at now, What is this Pentecost that they're celebrating? We think of Pentecost now in terms of its New Testament significance, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But Pentecost was an event that was celebrated by Jews uh, up until that time and, and well after. Well, the word Pentecost is actually a Greek word that just means 50th, 50th. And the reason for that is it's the 50th day, After Passover, like we just said. That's what Pentecost means. But really, it's just another name for what is known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. It's the second of three uh, festivals that occur around the harvest time, right? Passover being the first, and the Feast of Weeks being the second. The third one is the Feast of Tabernacles, if you want to know, know how that all fits together. But here, the Feast of Weeks is really just a celebration about the harvest. It's the end of the barley harvest. It's the beginning of the wheat harvest. um, And it was typically celebrated around mid-June. So here's the cool part about this aspect of Jesus' story. We know the time of year when it happened. This this stuff is happening around mid-June in in their calendar year. And um, again, this is a celebration of great... Um, rejoicing. It's a time when there were sacrifices offered to God as a way of saying, God, you've provided the first fruits of this harvest. We trust you with the rest. And because it's in the Old Testament, many Jews came from far and wide to celebrate it because they took it as a command, which, which it was, to celebrate this year after year after year. So people came from all different places to be able to celebrate this particular festival. Now, when this day comes, we see that these 120 believers, or however many there were, are gathered together in one place, and they're there probably to celebrate, but they're also waiting, right? Yes, they're aware that this festival is upon them, but they also know Jesus said, wait here, not many days from now, something is going to happen, and it happens. It happens on this day. Acts 2, 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. <coughs> Excuse me. The text tells us what happens. They're sitting in this room in Jerusalem, and suddenly a loud sound, like a rushing wind, comes out of nowhere. It doesn't say there's a literal rushing room. It didn't blow them out of the house or anything like that. It's a sound. sound of a, imagine the sound of a tornado, right? Something... Uh, just really loud and booming and filling the room. And when I think of this, or I read these, ver- these, um, these words, I, I think of some of the descriptions of sounds that occur back in the Old Testament. Because sometimes there's some association going on, right? So in Ezekiel 3, we don't, you don't have to turn there, but we see a vision that Ezekiel has of God's throne room. He said, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the, the voice of a great earthquake Behold, uh, the glory of the Lord is from this place, and it was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. So there's this loud noise happening in God's throne room in Ezekiel's vision. Same with chapter 10. Um, The wings of these same cherubim um, make a, a loud sound, okay, like the voice of God. Almighty. If you think about maybe uh, Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to the mountain, there was this loud sound like a, like a trumpet, right, or thunder uh, that scared the people, right? So these loud sounds associated with God uh, when he speaks, when he's present, and I think the same is happening here. When you hear this loud sound in this room with these apostles, it's a sign that God is showing up. He is present here. Additionally, Uh, It's not surprising because the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which also is just a common word for wind or breath. So when you're talking about the Holy Spirit and there's a wind or a sound of a wind, it's not surprising because that's very much associated with the idea, the same word for spirit or Holy Spirit. So notice what happens next, okay? There's this sound, something is about to happen, and then we see this, verse 3, Acts 2, verse 3. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's in the ESV. Uh, this is how other translations handled it. Maybe, maybe you have a different translation tonight. King James says, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Uh, challenge for this week, use the word cloven in a sentence, just randomly, see if anybody catches it, just for fun. Uh, New American Standard, there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. NIV, uh, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So you see I was highlighting, kind of emphasizing that word for cloven, divided, separated, different ways of, of handling that word. But we see a bunch of things here. Okay? In, in the ESV Study Bible, and I've said this before, best book you could own in, in terms of just studying the Bible, if you want to start somewhere, get a copy of that, because that is a great resource to have in your home. Uh, there's a comment about this verse, and it says this, The divided tongues, as of fire, were not literal flames, for Luke says, as of, he's trying to make a comparison here, but looked like fire, uh, that this was their best description that could be given. Fire in the Old Testament often indicates the presence of God, especially in his burning holiness and purity consuming everything that is impure. And these tongues may therefore portray both the purity and the power of speech that these disciples would proclaim, um, proclaiming the mighty works of God in Acts 2, verse 11, as well as the presence of God. So I think that's a good explanation why tongues of fire, um, God's power and also this power of speech that he's going to give to his disciples. The appearance of the Holy Spirit like tongues is fitting because in the next verse they will begin to speak in other languages uh, so that the speech indicates that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. One other thing we could see here in this verse is this word divided or cloven as the uh, King James says. The meaning seems to be that the Holy Spirit distributed himself among those in the room. Just like Jesus took the bread, remember in the Passover and the the Last Supper, it says he took the bread and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. It's like the bread was divided among them, given among them, and you see the Holy Spirit kind of splitting himself apart in a way, and not in the heretical sense, the Holy Spirit can't split himself apart, but you see what I mean? The tongues of fire distributing themselves among the apostles. It's almost like that same kind of imagery, I think, uh, as Jesus, uh, you know, what, what he did in, in the, the Last Supper. Another connection that could be made, possibly here, is that of a covenant. Because one thing we'll see, especially towards the end of this lesson, is that God established a new covenant with his people and that Jesus speaks of in the Passover, in the Last Supper, but also Paul's going to reference that in terms of the coming of the Spirit, that from this point forward, God is instituting a new covenant, a different way of kind of relating to his people, or a more revealed way that he's relating to his people, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, so that when we think of this idea of a covenant, back in Genesis, and this is a little bit more of an obscure reference, but when God was making a covenant with Abraham, uh, God had him do something strange. He had him take uh, animals and cut them in half and lay them out on the ground. Do you remember this? It's from Genesis. And what he did was, when, when Abraham was asleep at night, God appeared as a torch, a flaming torch that passed between these pieces of the dead animals. And that was God's way of making a covenant. With Abraham. And it seems kind of strange to us, like why would God do that? Why would God pass between cut up animals with this flaming torch? Uh, Many have uh, uh, surmised that it was like unto uh, some of the treaties that were made back in the time between kings and their servants, where they would take these animals, cut them up, and walk between them. And it was a way for the, the subjects of the king to say, May it be like these animals if I don't honor my part in this covenant. May I be cut in half, may I be killed, if we fail to serve you as we ought. And so God is doing that very thing, except he is taking the curse upon himself rather than Abraham. He is the one passing in between those pieces and saying, may I take that curse upon myself if I don't keep this covenant. And of course, it's Jesus Christ, the one who dies, even though he doesn't do anything wrong the one who takes that punishment of the covenant upon himself, which is interesting. So here we see in the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, there's this dividing. There's fire, just like in Abraham's case, and there's this division. Maybe a a parallel there, I don't know. Um, But something interesting to look at. So we do see in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 3, I'll just read this for you this reference to the new covenant and the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of, here it is, a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So no matter what the imagery, we see that here in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see something of this institution of a new covenant, something that God is doing with his people. So the Holy Spirit comes down on these individuals that are gathered. Again, more than just the apostles, many people gathered. They appear as tongues of fire that is kind of descending on them, and there's this rushing wind. So what happens now that the Holy Spirit has kind of come inside of them, dwelling within them, verse 4 of our passage tells us. And they were all filled, it says, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So as we said earlier, this is not just limited to the apostles. It applies to everybody that's uh, gathered there, um, Mary, Jesus' mother, of course, uh, the other women, Jesus' brothers. And just in this representative gathering, we see what the Holy Spirit does for every single believer when they come to Christ. Namely, in verse 4, it says that it comes into them and fills that person. And that's what happens for every single believer, right? When we accept Christ for the first time, when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that is something that happens here and is going to happen for every single believer from this point forward. So when this happens, um, they start talking in these other languages. Um, and when it says tongues, that's what's being referred to here. Not tongues in the sense of like gibberish or angelic language of some sort, but real, actual languages that were spoken during the time. And we'll prove that in, in just a moment, but, but we might ask, why did the Holy Spirit do this? Well, it's not because that's what happens to everyone who becomes a believer, right? When we all became Christians, that didn't happen to us uh, necessarily. It's not because that's the normative experience, but rather God caused these newly Spirit-filled individuals to start speaking in other real languages so that the crowds around them could see the power of God on display. It was meant as a witness to others. So there's this loud sound... We just summarized here. There's this descent of the Holy Spirit as tongues of fire on these individuals, and now they begin to speak in other languages. What's crazy is that even though they're in this room, this place, there are people around them that start to hear it, right? And that could just be the way that, you know, buildings were made back then. There's open windows. There's, you know, it's not that sound is trapped in there altogether. And it could very well be that once this starts, they start to proceed outside as well, so that somehow people on the outside start to hear what is going on. And when it says they heard the sound, it's referring to maybe the sound of the rushing wind or maybe the sound of the languages. definitely the second, uh, but maybe the first as well, enough to gather attention. So now we come to our second section, verses 5 through 13, and this is what it says. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, And they were there bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his or her own own native language? And then I'll skip over that whole list just for the sake of time. But in the end it says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And others mocked, saying they're filled with new wine. So it's clear from these verses right? And there are obviously different denominations and things that would hold to speaking in tongues as being um, this kind of otherly kind of language, a heavenly language that would sound like nothing that we would recognize. Here, we could at least say that in this passage, Luke is making it very clear that these tongues that are being described are human languages. And we know that because in verse 5, It says that devout Jews from many different nations are visiting Jerusalem at that time for this feast. And verse 6 makes it the most clear. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So therefore, what the apostles and others are speaking are not tongues of angels, as some would maybe argue today, but I would say they're real human languages. And that's made plain by the fact that Luke, this author, goes into great lengths to describe where all these people are from. Um, Now, if I could have that image up on the screen uh, that we have on the PowerPoint, and if you can just kind of see around, I know I have it on the cross, but it wasn't worth bringing the screen down just for this. When you see all these different names mentioned of where they're from, you see they're from everywhere, right? And it's kind of good to put some of this on the map. They're all coming To Jerusalem, and they're gathered from everywhere. In fact, it would seem that God intentionally had it so that there wasn't just random languages that they started to speak, right? It's not just that they picked some out of the air. So, for example, tonight, if all of a sudden I started to speak in Bengali, right, that would be akin to what's happening here. Or if somebody started to speak in Hindi, right, or French, all right? I didn't say Spanish, I could have said Spanish, but my luck, somebody in this room knows Spanish, and that would be a bad example. right? I'm talking about you know, like languages that uh, for sure you know I never learned. Right? I did not study Bengali in high school, all right? or college, or anywhere. Right? Um, so real languages that are being spoken by these individuals that they never learned, never studied. Right? Except that's not entirely the best analogy that I could have used, because none of us in here understand Bengali. None of us in here, I assume, understand Hindi But if we had visitors Who were coming to Lebanon Because Lebanon's this great, you know It's like New York City, you, know, you all know that uh, You know, where people come from all over the world to gather It's like the biggest city there is in Pennsylvania, of course if, if they all came to Lebanon Because there was some big festival happening here That everybody had to be at And they just so happened to show up To the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church tonight To listen to this message I don't know why they would But let's just say they were and we had somebody in the audience who understood Hindi, and all of a sudden I started speaking that, that would be a little bit more akin to this, right? Or if, if somebody else spoke Bengali, and I, you know, Jack Herb started speaking Bengali uh, suddenly out of nowhere, unless he studied that before, I don't know, maybe, maybe he, he knows. Um, we'll talk about that later, I don't know. But uh, that's the idea, right? Because God didn't just choose random languages, that nobody understood. He intentionally chose ones that were spoken by this group of people from all over the world that he knew would be coming and would be within earshot of the apostles and the disciples when that happened. You can take that down now. Thank you so much. Um, So God is doing something intentional. Again, causing them to speak things they never learned. And also speak specific languages that are, um, you know, again, within earshot of other people who spoke that, who were in Jerusalem at the time, to be able to hear this. And by the end of Acts 2, we're going to see there's a large crowd gathered, so somehow they're going to have to make their way from this upper room, maybe to like the temple area where that many thousands of people can gather, it's going to start to gather a following. And maybe as they're speaking, they're praising God, they're prophesying, saying all these things, and the crowds are getting with them and, and growing as they continue to speak. Okay? So, so that's the kind of thing that is, is happening. These languages are being spoken. And so verses um, 2 through 7... I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11... Uh, Illustrate this just as we had up on the screen. All in all, it's an amazing, miraculous thing. Why did God do it? Again, it was to show the crowds that God was at work here. God was doing something amazing. And so we see the reaction of the people in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Right? But then, of course, you have some mockers, and they're always mockers, it seems. Verse 13. Some said they were filled with new wine. And you can imagine that the people who are saying that are maybe the ones who live in Jerusalem, don't know any other languages, they don't understand what's happening, and they just say, well, what is this? You know, sounds like gibberish to me. Maybe if I heard somebody speaking Bengali, I've never really heard it spoken, it might sound like gibberish to me, because I just don't know that. And uh, maybe for people who were uh, more inclined to not believe them anyway, they would just say, ah, they're just, they're just drunk. That's their problem. Okay, but of course, Peter's going to argue against that later on, but that's a different passage for a different time. Okay, uh, so for tonight, though, um, it's clear that God has poured out his Holy Spirit on his people, and there's something amazing, something new, something incredible happening in this moment that we're going to be talking about uh, for the rest of the time, which we are to this, to this day, 2,000 years later. So what is going on? And this is where I want to get to the significance of the text. It's easy for us now that we've gone through each of these verses to kind of break them down, explain what they mean. A little bit harder, though, to say, what does it it mean in terms of its significance? Um, For example, we could ask questions such as, if the Holy Spirit was given to all believers at Pentecost, does that mean that all believers before this time didn't have the Holy Spirit? You know, uh, that's a a worthy question to ask. What does it mean? If, if, If believers now have... The Holy Spirit. What, what happened to the saints before them, or was the Holy Spirit's role different back then, or was it the same? Okay. So the, this now this kind of question is a little bit more difficult. We could also say, why is this event so important in the history of Christianity, right? Why is it that we still talk about this today? Um. And and on and on we could go. What is this larger significance? Well, let's answer this question first. If the Holy Spirit was only poured out at Pentecost, um, what role uh, did it play before then? Or what role did he play? Sorry, the Holy Spirit. It's not an it. I have to correct my own language here. Well, to that we can say that it wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the Old Testament before Pentecost arrived. Far from it, in fact. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was still the one that caused people to believe in Yahweh, to follow him. And in fact, we see several references in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit at work. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7. This is David speaking, and he's speaking of the fact that the Spirit is present with us always. And this is in the Old Testament, too. He says, where shall I go from thy Spirit? Or where shall I flee from thy presence? Right? So the Holy Spirit was present with his people before this time. The Holy Spirit also did gift people before this time. So you think of um, Exodus 3 where the Lord says to Moses, quote, "See, I have called by name Bezalel and I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship." This was the guy who uh, put together the tabernacle. It says the Holy Spirit gave him gifts. And boy, that makes us think a lot of 1 Corinthians where it talks about spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit gives those to us. So the spirit came upon people, gave them gifts, was present with them. We also see that uh, the Holy Spirit sometimes gave people the ability to do extraordinary things, right? In Acts chapter 2, they're speaking with these other languages. Well, back in, in the time of Samson, we read in Judges 14, quote, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore a lion asunder as one tears a young goat. Or chapter 15 of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes which were on his arms became as flax. So all in all, the Spirit was definitely present with God's people in the Old Testament. But after Pentecost, what happened? Well, we could say the Holy Spirit came to dwell within believers in a perhaps more personal way. From this point on in Acts, the gift of the Spirit comes hand in hand with becoming a Christian believer. And in this same chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, if you just want to turn there real quick, Acts 2, 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? This thing that has just happened to them, very visibly, he's saying, this is going to happen to you as well right? Not that they're all going to speak in tongues, but that they are going to be filled with the Spirit. He can give them that promise. So even from this point forward, it is apparent that the Spirit is going to be given to each and every believer. You know, the expression of this differs as we go on. Uh, Saul, in chapter 9 of Acts, is said to have been filled with the Spirit as it is here. Uh, Sometimes the experience is described as baptism in the Holy Spirit, In other instances, the word poured out is used, or came upon, or simply receive. But all all these are the same basic idea, that the permanent gift to every believer upon believing is the Spirit. Uh, This should be distinguished from other references, such as filling, right? When somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, maybe in the Old Testament or even the New, maybe that's when something special happens to them for a limited period of time, and that's different than what's being described here when somebody uh, received the Spirit indwelling within them. So that is something that's just made all the more clear and prominent from the time of Christ onward. So what happened at Pentecost then? Well, this is uh, one way that it uh, highlights some of the significance of Pentecost. We just talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this leads us back to that idea we talked about earlier of this new covenant. When Jesus was, again, instituting the Lord's Supper uh, in Luke 22, he said, this cup is poured out for you as a new covenant in my blood. And again, this passage we already read tonight, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, God made us to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So again... What's the significance of Pentecost? It's the institution of this new covenant, this renewed, this this very clear relationship that God has made between us and him in a, a very revealed way, right? Whereas some of these things might have been a little bit more behind the scenes as far as the Holy Spirit's role in us now, it's just made even more prominent. Whereas in the old covenant, the identity of the Messiah was a little bit more hidden, Now he has been revealed fully, and we know who he is, and he has come, and he has shown himself to us. And some of what we see here is a little bit of a preview of what heaven is going to be like. So we see in Pentecost some previews of some of the things that are ultimately going to be happening in an even fuller way when we get to the new heavens and new earth that Pastor Reed has just been preaching about for the past, I don't know how many weeks in his Revelation series. So, for example, we see the Holy Spirit is coming to dwell within our hearts, right? And, and in Jeremiah and in Joel, it was prophesied that the Spirit would come and God would make his dwelling in us and, and his law would be written on our hearts, right? And that is true. I think we have arrived at that point. But there's a sense of, like, what's happened already and what is still not yet happened, right? Where that's happened to a degree, but yet we still don't have the law fully written in our hearts Because we still sin, right? So this points to a reality that has already happened. We have the Holy Spirit, but yet when we get to heaven, it will fully be written in our hearts. We won't sin any longer. God's Spirit will be with us in such a way that we will not sin any longer, right? It's in that way a preview of some of the things that are to come. And if you see some of the other things that are present here also, you see um, just the power of God on display, well, that power is going to be even more fully known when we get to heaven. Or even when you think about the people that were gathered here in Jerusalem, right? You saw that map of people just gathered from every single uh, different place from around the world. And, and that's going to be um, even more so true. Because we see in Revelation 5.9, in the new heavens and new earth, uh, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we see in Pentecost a brief preview of the diversity of the kingdom of God, right? That people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be present there, right? And if we're not comfortable with that, with that diversity, boy, you're not going to like heaven. (laughs) Or God's going to correct your opinion of it, before you get there, right? Because even here we see people from every or just all these surrounding tribes and nations and in an even fuller way, that's what heaven's going to be like. One other way that Pentecost just kind of gives a brief taste of what heaven's going to be like, you might even say that this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel what happened all the way back in the Old Testament. Remember when God's you know, creation and His people started to just get so prideful that they made this Tower of Babel and said, we're going to reach all the way up to heaven and we're going to be you know, the top of the world. And God said no <laughs> and, and, and scattered them, caused the, their languages to be confused, right? And they scattered and couldn't understand each other. What's happening here in Pentecost is all of that division is being brought back together. Those many languages are being undone so that they can understand one another again. And boy, isn't that a picture of what heaven is going to be like? That scattering, that curse, is going to be reversed in such a way that we won't have that division of languages anymore. Isn't it kind of neat to think that will we be speaking one language again? Will it be the language of Eden? Whatever that was? I don't know. I think that's kind of a cool thought to, to think about as we think of the new heaven and new earth. So in conclusion here, because my time's done, what I want you to take away from this is that we live in an exciting era. We live in this time period. We live in the time of the Holy Spirit. What was promised so many years ago and so many different ways through the prophets is now here. And I'll end with this quote from John Piper, who explains it very well. He says, We have entered the last days The Messiah has come. He has accomplished redemption on the cross. He has risen and ascended to the right hand of God. And the interval before he returns in glory will be marked by an incomparable outpouring of the Holy Spirit on men and women, old and young, slave and free, near and far. And the people of God in this period are to be a people born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit empowered by the Spirit to bear witness to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We live in the latter days of the Spirit. We live in the days of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, the ones that were prophesied long to see. There are Here's the key part. There are no more decisive turning points in redemptive history that must happen before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. This is it, he says. These are the days of Pentecost, the days of the fullness of the Spirit, the days of worldwide mission. I love when he says that that there are no further turning points to be had until Jesus comes again. This is it. And we live in these days, these days that the prophet longs the prophet's longed to see. So the message is that God has literally given us the gift of himself, his Spirit. The Spirit of the one who made us now lives inside of us. And I don't know if we can think of a more mind-blowing thought than that. So let's make use of the fact that we have the Spirit living in us. Let's do everything in our power to stay in step with the Spirit, to be living according to the Spirit, to follow His leading, to be reading our Scriptures, uh, asking the Spirit to help us interpret that, to, to be drawing upon the Spirit when we pray or we don't know how to pray, to be... Uh, asking God to fill us with his Spirit in all possible ways because we live in this time, and it's a glorious time indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that of all times for us to be alive, we live in this time of the Spirit being poured out in our own hearts, that the creator of the universe, um, a member of the Trinity, dwells within us. And Lord, that's such an amazing fact for us to even comprehend So God, help us to live in keeping with that spirit and to be grateful as even we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.